Files. This week, we are discussing Season 7, Episode 4, A Most Uncomfortable Woman. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassnack Files on all sorts of places, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassnack Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander, Seasons 7 and 8, anything involved with Men in Kilts, Blood of My Blood, and whatever Diana a gabaldon cooks up and with all of that out of the way let's get into my analysis of 704 a most uncomfortable woman a pretty good episode. There were a few tiny little critiques that I had, but other than that, I honestly felt like it was really good. We had a lot of new faces this episode. It almost felt like a premiere in the respect that we met so many new people. We met the recasted Mandy and Jemmy, played by Blake Johnston Miller and Rosa Morris. We also met Henry Gray, played by Harry Jarvis, and then Denny and Rachel Hunter, played by Joey Phillips and Izzy Meikle-Small. So a lot of new faces, a lot of nice, refreshing faces. A recast of Jimmy and Mandy has kind of been on my wish list for a long time, and I know I'm not alone in that. I feel like, especially for this season, Jimmy has such a huge arc and so much to contribute to the plot that we really needed an older child actor. And I feel like we got that in Blake. I know that he has a long way to go and a lot of people felt that he was kind of stiff in his performance this season, but honestly, I think he has potential, so we'll just see how he settles into the role. As for Harry Jarvis playing Henry Gray, I felt like his role was kind of a stroke of genius because they've actually combined two characters from the book, Adam and Henry, into just Henry for the show, which I felt like streamlined a bunch of stuff and also is going to give us much more attachment to his character moving forward into the second half of season seven, where we will see him again. So if you have not read the books, stay tuned for that because it's a great plot line. As for Denny and Rachel, played by Joey and Izzy, two amazingly lovely people. I met them at Highlanders last month, and they're just wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And they're so talented. I was thoroughly impressed by their performance as Denny and Rachel. Joey isn't anything like what I pictured for Denny when I was originally reading the books, but I'm a firm believer in giving everybody their shot and giving them a chance to prove what they proved to the casting director as far as why they were chosen for that role. And I fully believe that Joey was a perfect choice for Denny. Izzy was actually very close to what I had pictured for Rachel, so I was thrilled that she was cast. And like I said, I think that obviously their roles get bigger as the season goes on, and this was a great introduction for them, I felt like. It was right in the middle of the action, immediately made them endearing, and I just felt like 10 out of 10 for the Hunter siblings. So Roger and Brie had a pretty decent size 
story this episode. So we're going to start out with them. I think we really saw the strength of their relationship coming to the forefront. We see both of them kind of on the back foot. They're both feeling unsure about their situation at the moment. But they're both being strong for each other and for the kids. And I feel like that deserves some props, you know, that they've got their issues, but they're working through them. And even though at the beginning of this episode, there was a bit of dishonesty, it all kind of comes to light by the end of the episode. And they're on firm footing again and working as a team again, which I really appreciate. I felt like all of their conversations this episode were extremely mature and show a great marriage. Honestly, this season, I know I've said it before, and I will probably say it a hundred times more, but Roger and Brie are so much stronger this episode and this season than they have been all the way up until this point, and I just appreciate it so, so much. And I hope that all the critics out there see the effort that the show is putting into these characters because I appreciate it 100% as a book reader. This episode kind of starts out and it's been three years since we've left Roger and Brie in the previous episode, 703. Obviously, that works out well for the recasting of Jemmy and Mandy, but it also works out in that we kind of get to skip over all the mundane stuff and we land right in the middle of... Renovations for Lollybrock, Brianna getting a new job, the kids being kids and being brother and sister and being feisty like they are, and Roger trying to figure out his situation as well. It's really kind of a melting pot of or a perfect storm of all sorts of different ingredients that are combining into this nice 20th century soup for Outlander. So Roger and Bree have been using all the money that Claire left Bree to renovate Lollybrock. Neither one of them have been working up until this point. So first off, they haven't had like a real job in like four years at this point. So hashtag life goals. But they're still trying to kind of figure out their next move, right? And when the contractor comes to them and says, "Eh, the upstairs is kind of in rough shape and it's going to be more than we expected it to be. So here's your new estimate. And you literally just see their faces fall. Speaking of someone who's recently been through renovations and is currently still going through renovations, I understand how expensive it can be. It's always like double what you initially think it's going to be. And there are always problems that you run into. So I felt their frustration on a level that I cannot tell you how much I identify (laughs) with the stress that these people are feeling right now. But it also just adds an extra level of anxiety for them because they're not working. And Brianna comes to the realization that something has to be done. They have to have a source of income if they want to keep this moving down the track. And she's trying to be optimistic and she's trying to keep the right frame of mind. And you see her looking at Roger and saying, you know, we're halfway in. We have running water and a working kitchen. And she's just trying so hard. But then the minute that she hugs him and he can't see her face, it just falls. And you can see the stress. You can see her worry. And obviously, she knows she's going to have to go to work. She's going to have to provide. She's going to have to give them some sort of income because the money is gone. Likewise, when Roger sees that Brianna is getting a job and going to be the breadwinner, that doesn't really make him feel good. We're seeing these characters through a 21st century lens, but you have to understand that this is the 1980s where women were starting to have careers of their own, but men were still primarily the breadwinners. They brought in the money. and 
this is a real source of tension for Roger and Bree because despite everything, Roger knows he's married to a modern woman who wants to make her own way in the world. He knows that. He recognizes that. But at the same time, there's still a part of him that wants to be able to provide for his wife and family and make sure that they're safe and secure. He promised Jamie and Claire that he would look after all of them and make sure they were safe, and he feels like he's failing. And that is a lot of why he wasn't supportive of Brianna. It's not that he wasn't proud of her. He absolutely was, and he is every day that she proves how amazing she is to him. But at the same time, he feels like he's not holding up his end of the bargain. Jamie said, there's no other man that I would trust to look after my daughter. And Claire said, take care of our girl. And he feels like he's not taking care of anybody. If anything, Bree is taking care of him. And that just doesn't sit well with him. So in a lot of respects, he feels like he needs to be doing more. And on top of that, you add his crisis of faith that he's having. Roger was pretty set in becoming a minister before they left the 18th century. And he put that on hold. You know, he said being a minister can wait because their family was more important. Mandy's health was more important. But now that they're back in the 18th century, he's having a lot of doubts because he's a Presbyterian and he was going to be a Presbyterian minister. A large part of the Scottish Presbyterian faith, a large part of the Presbyterian faith in the 18th century was the idea of predestination that, as Roger said, God is in his heaven and all is right with the world. There's a divine plan that only God knows and everything that happens is meant to happen. There is no free will and choice in the matter. So despite all the efforts of Jamie and Claire to prevent the 45 from happening, it was going to happen because it was part of God's divine plan. No matter how much Roger and Bree tried to save Jamie and Claire from this house fire, they were still going to die in the house fire because it was God's will. But Jamie and Claire didn't die in the house fire. Roger and Bree were able to change things and save their lives. And while Roger is greatly relieved that Jamie and Claire survived, it also raises a lot of questions that he doesn't have the answer to and he's never going to be able to get the answers to. How did they change history? And if they were able to change history, what does that say about his religious beliefs? So he's got a lot going on right now and all of these questions do not help him to feel like he's getting things figured out on the home front or the spiritual front and it just leaves him floundering a little bit he's trying to find his way and i feel like they've done a very good job of adapting this conflict in roger to make him very sympathetic as a character roger's a very different character in the books and it would be easy to kind of get frustrated with roger if you didn't understand everything that like all the backstory that you get from the books so i'm glad that they changed it a little bit in the show and rick rankin does a fantastic job as well of portraying this dilemma so that it's not so oh my god roger get your shit together and brianna doesn't take well to it either in the books and i think that that kind of reaction would have only alienated roger more from the show fans so i'm glad that they recognized that that needed to change for their audience so we talked a little bit about how brie knew that she needed to get a job she needed to make money to keep the renovation going and provide for her family. But we're also talking about a female engineer in the early 1980s when 
it was a predominantly male field. It still is. I mean, there are more and more female engineers, but it's really a male-dominant industry. She's going into the war zone, basically, trying to get a job. And, you know, she gets honest. Her mom loves to assert her authority to men who think that she has no right to be there. So Brianna is kind of taking a page out of her mom's playbook. And I love how she approaches this interview with just a steamroller mentality. She knows if she goes in as this polite and meek little woman that nobody's going to believe that she can handle being in a man's world. At the same time, she realizes that She's going to have to just punch it and just basically roll over this man. And she just starts asking him rhetorical questions like my favorite line of the entire episode, which made quote of the episode for me, which is, and which aspects of plant inspection require a penis? (laughs) And he just has nothing to say to that at all, which I mean, what would you say to that? I love that she confronts his misogynistic nature with such a blunt question that he literally has no reply. And then she just keeps the rhetorical questions coming like, oh, so you hire men that would assault a woman? And he's like, well, no. And she just keeps going and keeps going until eventually she convinces him to give her the job. And, you know, you have to be proud of Brie in that moment that she knows what she wants and she goes after it and she makes no apologies for it. I love that about Bree's character. And for the first time in forever, I felt like we were actually seeing Bree the way she was intended to be. And it felt so good to my soul <laughs> to see this version of Brianna. It was fantastic. The last little bit of Bree and Roger's story that I kind of want to touch on is the whole Jemmy situation. So Jemmy is probably... I want to say eight or nine at this point. And he's normally a very honest child. Like you ask him a question, you'll get an answer. And Brie and Roger are finding more and more lately that he's not being honest with them. And when he is honest, they're starting to not believe him because he has a tendency to lie. So it's the old adage, you know, cried wolf one too many times. That's kind of what happens with the Nuklevi. Jemmy is extremely intelligent, extremely curious, and he decides he wants to find out how mom's alarm clock works. So he literally disassembles it and accidentally breaks it. But obviously, he's not going to tell his mom that he tore it apart and broke it because he was trying to figure out how it worked because he doesn't want to get in trouble. So he says the Pixies did it. The way that this episode is written, the structure is very A leads to B leads to C etc. So when the pixies are mentioned, Roger kind of starts thinking like pixies, like that's odd. What significance does pixies have? Like it seems a bit frivolous, especially for a place like Scotland that has all these really dark folktale type things like blue hags and kelpies and bansheeds and stuff like that. Pixies seem very mundane compared to all of those things. But it's the type of thing that Jem comes up with on his own. Mostly innocent, more mischievous, not really dark and twisted, right? So that really clues Roger in particular into the fact that when Jem says the Nuklevi did it later, when they're talking about the biscuits and crisps being missing, and the Nuklevi did it and he told me that he'd eat Mandy if I didn't do it for him, 
Roger starts thinking like Nucklevy. Like, where did that come from? Because it's not even something that Roger would know unless he digs back through his file of facts of old Scottish folk tales and remembers that a Nucklevy is like a horse slash demon thing from the Northern Isles. And where on earth would Jimmy get that, especially when Jimmy says that Jamie didn't tell him about it? It's just a very strange situation and... I like the conversation that Roger and Bree have later in the episode. It's towards the end where they're discussing Jimmy and how much of an imagination he has. And I feel like this is a very authentic parent conversation that Roger and Bree have. At what point do you decide to chastise your child for letting their imagination run wild? And it becomes even more difficult when you're looking at the fact that Jimmy is a time traveler. And it's like Roger says, he knows that magic exists in the world. So how do you stifle your child's imagination? And if you make that decision to kind of tell them, hey, cut it out, then you risk stifling their imagination so much that they forget where they come from. And that's absolutely not something that Roger and Brie want. They want Jemmy and Mandy to know where they come from and who they come from. That's important to them. So they choose to kind of let it ride and just monitor the situation and play it by ear, which I think was the right call because that has to be so hard. Roger made lots of promises to Jamie and Claire on that day when they left. And one of them was that he wouldn't let the kids forget who they were. He would remember them for the kids. So if they force Mandy and Jimmy into a situation where they aren't allowed to have an imagination, they're afraid that they'll stop believing their own story. So I thought that that was such a conundrum. It has to be hard as a parent to do what's best for your kid, but also to keep their heritage alive at the same time. So from there, we're going to slip into Jamie and Claire's story for this episode. Lots of moving parts, lots of up in the air juggling this week with the different storylines, but I thought it was handled with a plum, honestly. I thought that everybody did a really good job, especially the way that the episode was edited and structured so that one part kind of flowed into another. What I did notice, so I'll talk about it here because it kind of flows from Jamie and Claire's story into Ian's story into William's story. My only complaint about this episode was the timeline picture of it all. When we look at how this episode is structured, you know, one of my chief complaints about the show is that they just don't show the passage of time well at all. It's never been a strong suit of theirs. And you can see it in this episode. William leaves to go on his intelligencing mission. Then it'll flash to Jamie and Claire in Wilmington talking to Cornelius Harnett. That whole conversation ensues where Ian decides that he is also going to join the cause for independence. And then Ian leaves to go up north, right? And supposedly Jamie and Claire are going to take the ship the next morning towards New Haven. And then it shows Ian finding William in the Great Dismal Swamp. But then after that, it flashes back to Claire, who is still in Wilmington with Tom. It's taken weeks for Ian to get up to William, but then somehow it flashes back to Claire still in Wilmington, even though they were supposed to leave the night after the conversation in the tavern between Jamie, Claire, and Ian. 
So I didn't care for that structure at all. And I think that if anything, they should have put it chronologically so that people could kind of understand what was happening. And I guess if you're not really paying attention to the timeline, it really doesn't cross your mind that there's a timeline discrepancy there. But honestly, this is how I felt the entire time I was reading Echo for the first time, because there are so many different timelines. You have Brian Rogers' timeline, William and John's timeline, and then Ian and Jamie and Claire's timeline. And they all kind of weave in and out of each other across the different chapters until about halfway through Echo, and then they all converge. And they're all lined up together at that point. But the thing that bothered me about this episode is that there was no notation of the time. They just kind of let it flow into each other like it was all one continuous timeline. So for me, I was just like, wait a minute, like, how are they still in Wilmington if Ian has already made it all the way up to the Great Dismal Swamp, but they were supposed to leave right when Ian left? I'm just so confused. So anyway, that bugs me every time I see it because it just doesn't, does not make sense to me. But regardless of that, if you can let that go, like I'm sure a million people have at this point, you can see some really great stuff. So Jamie and Claire are finally getting into the revolution, which was a major streamlined process from Echo. I'm of two minds about this because I don't think that they needed everything that was in Echo, but also the conscription bit did feel kind of clunky and convenient for me. Nevertheless, I thought it was a great opportunity to see Cornelius Harnett again and kind of see what came of all of that from Give Me Liberty in season six, because that was my favorite episode of season six. So I'm always game to see these characters reappearing and being relevant to the plot. So I really did appreciate that on a lot of levels. What felt conflicting for me was that Cornelius Harnett just happens to run into him on the street and forces him into serving. It just didn't feel right for some reason to me. And I'm not sure that I can fully explain why. But honestly, like Jamie and Claire had a pretty mild storyline this episode. They were mostly there to blend the episode together. They're the tie that binds, as I like to call them. We get a surprise reappearance from Tom Christie. I'm always happy to see Mark Lewis Jones again. And for us book readers, by the title of this episode, A Most Uncomfortable Woman, we knew that this was going to be the reappearance of Tom. And that kiss, holy smokies. I thought that they both did such a fantastic job with that. Tom thought that Claire was dead and that he was never going to see the woman that he loved ever again. And so when he runs into her on the street, he's just overcome by emotion and has this impulse to just lay one on her. Kat did such a great job of playing that utter confusion. She's just flat out flummoxed. Can't believe what's happening. I mean, at least she didn't slap the poor guy. That's all I got to say, because Lord knows Claire likes to slap people when she's being (laughs) kissed against her will. I really thought that it was a fantastic scene. The look on Katrina's face was absolutely priceless. (laughs) Honestly, I adored all of this interaction between Claire and Tom, the scene in the Red Falcon in where they kind of discuss the whole situation was gorgeous, in my opinion. I mean, obviously, Mark Lewis Jones is phenomenal in every role he plays, but he really knocked it out of the park with this scene. One thing that I wanted to tell you guys, whenever I was at Highlanders in August, somebody asked Mark about 
kissing scenes in general because we weren't allowed to discuss Outlander specifically because of the SAG-AFTRA strike. But somebody asked him, like, so for kissing scenes, is it hard to not burst into laughter whenever you're kissing someone that your character wouldn't normally be caught kissing, whatever? And Mark said, sometimes you have to do more than one take. And sometimes you have to suffer for your art. <laughs> so he's a funny guy. And I just thought that was an interesting tidbit that I'd throw in here for you guys. The scene in the inn where they're talking about answered prayers, the tears in Tom's eyes basically throughout the entire conversation just melt my heart because he was such a hard man for all of season six, pretty much. And it was really hard to sympathize with him on any level because you just felt like he was this crotchety old guy. But down deep, he really is so full of emotion and he just doesn't know how to express it. And I feel like loving Claire has really allowed him to come out of his shell and embrace his softer side, as it were. And I love the dialogue here where he says, I have loved two women. One was a witch and a whore. Some say you're a witch yourself. Makes not a whit of difference. The love of you has led me to my salvation and to what I thought was my peace once I thought you dead. And yet, here you are. I shall have no peace while you live, woman. Mind, I don't say I regret it. So he's just come to this conclusion that he's never going to know a moment's peace while Claire lives. And I love how we get this connection between Roger, Tom, and William throughout this episode. The episode is titled A Most Uncomfortable Woman, which is obviously alluding to the uncomfortable women, Brie, Claire, and Rachel. But there's another tie in this episode, which is men trying to find answers to who they are. Roger struggling with his spirituality. Tom is struggling with his unrequited love for Claire and who he is with or without her. And William is struggling with who he is as a man and his life unlived. Who is he going to be? That's the decision that is haunting William at this moment. Like, what can I do that's worth doing? So we get different stages of existential crisis in this episode from three different men. And I thought that that was a very interesting tie throughout all the different story points as well for this episode. So to follow up the Tom and Claire scene, we get the love scene between Jamie and Claire. I loved this scene for so many reasons. Obviously, Jamie and Claire have a different feel this episode. They're much more playful and relaxed with each other. And I don't know if that's like Sam and Kat bleeding through into Jamie and Claire's characters or whether it's just the writer this episode understands that side of Jamie and Claire better. I'm not quite sure. I can't put a finger on it. But there was something so natural about Jamie and Claire from the very beginning scene where we see Jamie and Claire in the woods on their way to Wilmington and they have the whole apple conversation. 
they're teasing each other. Claire says, I know Highlanders are innately suspicious of fresh fruit. And then it goes all the way into Jamie saying, well, you are an unusually preserved old crone. And then he teases her by like acting like he's going to give her the cheese and then he eats it himself. There was something so endearing about that moment. It's like, this is why we love these two. Because yeah, they're capable of these really romantic gestures and fantastically epic scenes but also they're just cute together even when they're relaxed and having a road trip so on the complete opposite end of the episode but in a similar vein after the kiss between claire and tom you still see that teasing nature in the scene between claire and jamie when claire's like he kissed me and jamie's like had i better go kill him then (laughs) He's teasing her, but it's a serious question at the same time. And that's what Jamie wants her to know. Like, yes, I'm joking, but also I know he kissed you against your will. And if you want me to go and fight him, I will. Like, that that's not cool if it really bugs you that much. And she says, no, it's not worth it. But she just doesn't know how to feel about it in that moment because... It's such conflicting emotions. She grieved for Tom. She thought he was gone forever. And now to find out that he's alive. And on top of that, he kissed her, a married woman who has been through a lot, has been sexually assaulted, and she doesn't like being touched against her will anyway. And then he just did it. But again, she's not really sure how she feels in that moment. And I think Jamie knows that. I love that he tells her, you did no wrong by grieving him. I grieved him too. It's only natural. To have that feeling over someone that you were fond of and then to find out that he's alive in much the same way that he found out Claire was alive. It's just it's nuts to get in their headspace um, and to understand what they're going through. But that scene between Jamie and Claire continues into a love scene and they keep up this playful nature where they're talking about being jealous of each other's love interests and how Jamie is jealous of Tom even though Claire doesn't think he has a right to be and then Claire says well how would you feel if I was jealous and he said well you were jealous of Leary were you not and she just gives him this look like what do you think and he said I I thought so it's One of those conversations that you have with really good friends and family and loved ones where you're teasing, but you're not teasing at the same time. Like it's a genuine question and answer session, but with this undertone of jest, (laughs) it felt so real and so unique and an actual conversation that an actual couple would have. And then on top of that, I literally loved every ounce of this scene. The lighting alone would be enough to just knock my socks off because I do love a good sunset lighting. That glow, it just puts a halo around everything in the room, especially Sam and Kat when they're in front of the window. It just makes for this gorgeous light play in their hair and off their silhouettes. Ooh, it's amazing. But then when you also add the camera work into it, when He lays her on the bed and lays on top of her and then they roll across the bed and the camera pans from them on the bed to the mirror on the nightstand. A lot of times when you see a mirror in a show or movie and particularly an outlander, it kind of symbolizes someone not being 100% truthful 
with themselves or with other people. And you saw this a lot with the mirror play in season six, when Claire would look in the mirror and either see her ghosts haunting her or see herself in the mirror. But this time when the camera pans over and you see Jamie and Claire making love in the mirror, it very much said to me, what you see is what you get with this couple. And I really thought it was a very cool way to show that. So one last thing about this, we learned who submitted the obituary. So the obituary has been that thing that's hanging around ever since season four, and we always had questions about it. Where did it come from? Why is it there? And especially if Jamie and Claire never died, who submitted it? Well, Tom submitted it. And so this raises a lot of questions, right? Because here Roger and Brie are thinking that they changed the future and saved Jamie and Claire. Well, you would think that if Jamie and Claire didn't die, there wouldn't be an obituary for Roger and Bree to find to go back and save them. Yet, Tom submitted the obituary after hearing a rumor from another man that Jamie and Claire had died in the house fire on the ridge. So, it raises the question, did Roger and Bree really change the future? Or was it a big misunderstanding in the first place? That is the question. So is Roger's spiritual crisis really a thing? Or is he just having doubts based off of what he thinks to be true versus the actual truth? I know I'm throwing a lot of deep questions out there at you guys today, but these are the questions that we all have. Like, what is it? Is it real or is it fake? The line is blurred, and I feel like that the line is blurred a lot this episode, particularly when it comes to William's Captain Richardson. And Captain Richardson is especially a murky character in the books. For a long time, you just don't know whose side he's on, what his end game is, who he really is. So for the life of me, I cannot figure out as a show watcher whether they have adapted him into a straight shooter in the show or if he's just really that good at portraying someone that's a murky character and you just don't quite know if he's a good guy or a bad guy. Because William discovers at the end of this episode that the men he was supposed to be delivering letters to for Richardson are actually part of the Continental Army. William thinks that maybe Richardson has bad intel, and we find out more in the next episode, but William's having some doubts at the end of this episode as to where everybody's loyalties lie. I think one thing in particular that has been stressed in this episode, ideal versus reality, is a big theme. What do you believe to be true versus what is actually true? It's all about perception, and we especially see that with William and the Hunters, with William and the fire ship scene. William's very innocent when we first see him in 702. We get the very glossed over naive version who has all these ideas of grandeur, but he doesn't really know how the world works. And slowly but surely, he's being woken up to the fact that he's not going to be able to keep this naivete for long. The fire ship scene was a horrific moment. Watching a woman get burned alive in front of your eyes is just not pleasant in anybody's universe, I don't think. But it really showed William that 
even an army full of men who I'm sure for the most part he viewed to be respectable soldiers, honorable men, they just burned this woman alive in the middle of the street. So that was part one, that not everybody in the British army is good. And then to bookend his story this episode, we get the scene between William and Rachel where he finds out that Denny has enlisted with the Continental Army as a surgeon. So he's learning here that not every member of the Continental Army is bad. The lines are being blurred a lot here, and he's starting to understand the complexity of this war. It's not as black and white as he originally thought, which is exactly what John tried to explain to him, and he just wasn't ready to hear. It's a big episode for William in a lot of respects this week. You're just getting an idea of William's character in general, that he has a respect for everyone, all creatures, big and small. It doesn't matter to him where you come from or what you do. He will treat you as a human being. He's just generally nice like that. He's honorable, but also he has a hell of a temper. He definitely has his father's temper where that's concerned. So you're really starting to get a feel for who this man is. Plot-wise, the big points for William was meeting Ian and meeting the hunters. Meeting Ian was huge. And last week we had the conversation between Jamie and Ian so that when Ian and William meet again, we don't have that question of, well, how did Ian know that this was Jamie's son, like Lord John's son? How did he know that? We got that last week so that when they encountered each other in the Great Dismal, it was like, oh, shit. It was that moment where you're like, oh, they're cousins. And Ian knows, but William doesn't. It was a very big moment for these characters, I felt like. I feel like we see a version of William with Ian that we don't really see with anyone else. He's among a contemporary instead of someone that he feels like he needs to put on a show for in a lot of ways. So he's a simplified version of himself. I think the scene where Ian and William are talking about death songs was probably... Like, I was so hoping that that was going to make it into the show, and I was so glad when it did, because I felt like there was so much said in that. When Ian is treating William's wounds, William is trying so hard not to show any weakness or fear, and a lot of that, not a lot of it, but part of it is that Ian is Mohawk. And William knows a little bit about Mohawk, and that's why he starts asking, is it true that when captured or tortured, Mohawk don't show any sign of of fear? And Ian says, well, mostly you just try not to put yourself in that position. (laughs) Score one for Ian on these smartass charts. What I thought was very interesting about that moment was that you see William's chin tremble as he's talking to Ian about not showing fear and like what the Mohawk would do. As you see William's curiosity over Ian's life with the Mohawk, asking all of these questions and stuff, it really becomes a moment where you see how young William is. Like He's probably 18 or 19 at this point in the story. He hasn't lived a lot of life and that's suddenly becoming like abundantly clear to him that He doesn't have anything worth being remembered for. And that's really sad, but honestly, at the same time, motivates him to keep going even when it looks like he might lose his arm. There's a lot of bonding between him and Ian, which I think 
ultimately helps draw the parallel that they were trying to draw in this episode, which I think is one of the most genius parts of this episode. We really see a strong parallel between 509 Monsters and Heroes and 704, A Most Uncomfortable Woman. In 509, that's where Jamie gets bitten by the snake, and we see a lot of similar camera work with close-ups of a very ill William laying down on the ground. We have saw several similar shots of an, a very ill Jamie laying on the ground while Roger was administering to him while they were stranded out in the mountains. Jamie almost loses his leg and is very stubborn about it. He said, I would rather die than lose my leg. And William has a very similar reaction when he says, I'd rather die than lose my arm. And it's Ian both times that convinces these men, these stubborn Fraser men, that losing a limb is not the end of the world and you still have a life worth living. It's not over <laughs> if you lose your your leg or your arm, whatever. So I love that tie in with those two scenes. You're seeing a parallel being drawn between father and son, but also between the relationships that Ian has with those two men. It was very good. I really liked it. Alrighty. Well, I think that about wraps up my thoughts on 704, A Most Uncomfortable Woman. But as always, I wanted to give you guys an opportunity to tell me what you thought. So without further ado, let's get into listener comments. Melanie Wyatt says, I enjoyed this episode from beginning to end. This was our first look at the new Jim and Mandy, as well as the inside of Lollybrock, and I was very pleased with both. I thought they did a good job showing the Max as parents and the challenges of home renovations. Of course, loved Bree's interview scene. I noticed the primary colors that dominated the 1980 scenes. I also liked all of the William scenes with both Ian and Rachel. My favorite was the scene where Rachel was shaving William. I liked listening to their formal way of speaking to each other. I dreaded seeing the burning woman scene, but I understand it was to give insight to William's character. And the Tom Christie kiss... And learning he placed the obituary in the paper. I thought this episode did a great job moving all the stories forward, including getting Jamie into the war. Yeah, lots, lots of stuff that I want to chat about in that comment, Melanie. Thank you. The coloration in the 1980s is very interesting because they do really play up the warm colors, the mustards and the navy blues and that crimson red color. You really do see lots of saturated colors versus in the 18th century, you see a lot of muted natural tones unless you're looking at the red coat uniforms. And then that is really the only shades of red that you really get in the 18th century, aside from some embellishments on the Red Falcon Inn. So yeah, lots of color in the 1980s palette for sure. I also loved the Ian and Rachel scene and their little budding romance. It's so cute. I really love that they're playing up this love triangle a little bit. I mean, it's not like it's a predominant thing or anything. It's not like the whole episode focuses on it. But I like that they show the interest that each of these men, Ian and William, have in Rachel. And then she's kind of this magnetic personality. She really draws people in. And I love that she says that she seems a bit too forward for some people. And Ian tells her, well, perhaps it's because my auntie's a surgeon, but I've seen her heal plenty of stubborn men and sometimes too forward is what they need. <laughs> Honestly, I think that's why Ian is so drawn to Rachel because she reminds him a lot of his auntie Claire. But Rachel in general is just a fantastic presence and she's just 
she is who she is and makes no bones about it. It's a really refreshing change of pace. But also her Quaker beliefs throw a lot of wrenches into the works. So she's very different from Claire in that she doesn't believe in violence um, because Claire, as a surgeon, has a profession where violence is inherent. So um, there are differences. There are similarities, but there are also differences. The next comment is from Amy Jo Patience Williams. She said, I really enjoyed this episode. The kiss was perfect with a bit of humor. Loved meeting the hunter and the looks between Ian and Rachel. I'm glad they edited the dismal swamp stuff down as I felt that section of the book was too long. Overall, a solid episode. You know, it really was a long part of Echo, but I didn't mind it near as much as Jamie and Claire's ocean odyssey, so to speak, between the ridge and getting to Ticonderoga. And thank God they cut all of that out. So I agree with you, Amy. I think that it was a long portion of it. And I do think they did a fantastic job paring it down for the screen. Let's put it that way. All right. Final comment of the day is from Jen Jenny. She says, love Ian and Rachel and the way they're drawn to each other. Very Jamie and Claire like. I definitely think William has the inclination to find himself in sticky predicaments as his fathers often do. I think it's a combination of nature, nurture, and finding out who he is as a man. That kiss was the perfect piece to help them tie up Tom's part of the story. Good for him going for it. I agree with you. I think William's pension for sticky situations is part nature, part nurture, uh, but also part convenient for the plot. (laughs) I think that it makes a very interesting story, but also there's no denying the fact that Jamie and John both know how to get themselves in trouble. I do think that all in all, it really does help us not only understand William's character, but help him grow as a man. I noticed throughout this episode, but also over the course of the season, that you hear his theme get deeper and more rich as we progress through the season. But also one thing that I noticed, particularly when we're talking about the death song, he starts out trying to make his own death song and he says, I am William Henry George Ransom, ninth Earl of... He says, no, that's too long. And then he starts over and goes, I am William James. And then he says, I am William. And he just looks up at the sky. In that moment, you hear the OG Wooly theme song, um, the very high clarinet theme, that iconic think back to of lost things moment. And honestly, I felt like as we were going through that transition of William Henry George Ransom, ninth Earl of, to William James, to William, it really shows a regression of his identity. This grown man, this confident individual that joined the British army is William Henry George Ransom, ninth Earl of Ellesmere. That's who he believed himself to be at the start of this. And then we regress to who he was when he knew Jamie, when he was young. We're getting closer to the core of his being when he says, I am William James. And then we go even further into I am William. We're not quite sure who William is at this point, but I think breaking it down past all the titles and all the fluff to the core of I am William is very profound 
and very creative as well. It says a lot about who he is and like who he wants to be. And I think at this point, he wonders if he'll ever do something worth being remembered for. So there's a lot of questions in William's life right now. And I feel like that only compounds as season seven will continue on. Alrighty, guys. Well, that wraps up everything for 704, A Most Uncomfortable Woman. So I am off next week. I will not be doing a new podcast. And then the following week after that, I will be doing my live edition of Droughtlander Book Club, where I am covering The Three Brooches by Katherine Lowry Logan. That is the sixth book in the Celtic Brooch series. You can catch my Droughtlander Book Clubs on all the previous books wherever you listen to the Sassanac Files. If you are reading the Celtic Brooch books or you are just bored and want something to do, you can come into my private Facebook group, TSF of Sassanacs. Join and you can participate in our live discussion on Sunday, September 24th at 12 p.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time. And then I will be off for another week after that, and then I'll be back with 7.05. So I hope that will give you plenty of time to catch up on all your Droughtlander podcasts that you're listening to and probably rewatch season seven if I know you guys, which I do know some of you very well. So until then, you guys stay safe out there and I'll chat at you later. Bye.